Good evening, everyone. I'm Michael Han, joined this evening by Stephen Wilson to talk about his new album, The Future Bites, and very much else besides. Now, we've just watched your new video, Stephen, for Self, from the fantastic new album, The Future Bites. As a thoughtful kind of person, I'm guessing you're trying to tell us something in that video. What are you trying to tell us? Well, you know, the whole sort of idea behind the album is this idea about how identity has changed in the age of social media. And so this got me to thinking about how um, you cannot believe anything you see online anymore. Even the idea of, you know, um, creating a kind of uh, presence for yourself online is not something that anyone else can trust because obviously you can create a construct, you can create an idea of yourself that has no bearing on reality at all. So I thought it would be a great idea to do a kind of fun video where it's very obviously transparent that the people I'm turning into, you know, are not me. They're famous people. So that was the kind of, that was where we started off with that. Now, the role of tech is a big theme in this record. And it's something you've been worrying away at for the best part of a quarter of a century in your music. Mm. Why do you feel that technology is such a danger now? Or such a cause for concern, maybe, rather than a danger? Because I think it's moving faster than anyone can really understand, you know, the true consequences um, and the, the effect that it's having on human evolution. You know, I grew up in the age of television and television was a big thing. Obviously, when television came around, everyone was very concerned about the kind of long term effects it would have on children and adults alike. But now we have this thing called the Internet, which is far, far, far more, you know, kind of concerning in the sense it's changed almost every aspect of our life in a relatively short period of time. And I don't think anyone really understands the true long term consequences of it. And I guess that's what I'm fascinated by, you know. I mean, it's, it's been hailed as a way for musicians to reach their audiences directly, um, moving aside from the long term consequences for children. Now, has it worked that way for you? Have you been able to reach people using the Internet and using social media? Yeah, I mean, this is the irony for me is that although I'm very concerned about it, I obviously love it and I couldn't really exist without it. Now, I'm the kind of musician that doesn't have a strong presence in the mainstream. So my following has been very much dependent on shared, you know, kind of experience, word of mouth. And actually very early on in the Internet's history, there were fan sites dedicated to me, which were kind of the music was kind of proliferating through these fan sites, you know. So I have a lot to, you know, to be grateful to the Internet for. But that doesn't that doesn't take away from the fact there's obviously something much broader here, a much more con deeply concerning thing, which is the way it's kind of turning everyone into it. Well, we're all turning into sort of a, a species of narcissist and, and self-obsessed people looking at social media all the time. And, you know, my, for me, the key line in self is that line where it says self sees a billion stars, but still can only self-regard. So it's this idea that we used to look out at the cosmos. We used to look up at the stars with curiosity. And now we spend most of our time looking at that to see how many likes we've got and how many views we've got and how many comments we've got. And surely that can't be a good thing, right? But do you think that genuinely makes us solipsistic? I mean, aren't people engaging with the world if they're, if they're on social media, if they're finding out more? There's so much more information. And, you know, like my son, who's 17, knows so much about so many things, often slightly terrifying things, but there's a lot of knowledge out there and he's gaining it from the internet. Well, that, that's the thing about the internet is there are wonderful things about, about it, you know, like I said. So there's more access to music than ever before. So looking at it from a very personal perspective, that when I was a kid, you know, if I wanted to discover all this music that I would hear about, maybe I'd hear another musician talking about it, or I'd read an interview with my favourite 
pop star and he'd be mentioning something else that sounded interesting. The only way I could, you know, find that music and listen to it was probably to save up my pocket money, go down to Virgin Megastore in London once a month and choose very carefully what record I was going to invest my money in. Now it's all there. It's all instantly there. But the problem with that is that it also means everything is so easily dismissible as well, isn't it? So whereas before I would invest my pocket money in, I don't know, a copy of Troutmas Replica by Captain Beefheart, which I hated the first time I heard it, but I'd spent like eight quid on it. So I kept listening to it and listening to it until I understood what was special about it and the magic kind of, you know, finally kind of registered. But now I think it's so easy to dismiss everything. Everything is so easily and instantly accessible to us. Music, cinema, news, pornography, you know, you name it. It's all so instantly accessible that it's almost more disposable as well. I mean, as a musician, um, we've seen the research that says, you know, the first 30 seconds on stream are the most crucial thing. You have to grab people in the first 30 seconds, mm -hmm. which is why so many songs are front loaded with hooks, which are then just repeated for the rest of the song. Mm. As somebody who makes music, do you feel that pressure to make stuff that is, that is grabbable on Spotify or Tidal or Apple Music or wherever? Well, let's just say the subject certainly comes up, you know. Um, the thing is, obviously, my whole career, I've been very committed to this idea of the album as a musical continuum, as a kind of sonic journey. I grew up, you know, my parents listened to albums like Dark Side of the Moon and the, the classic Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder disco records, some of which had very long pieces which would unfold over a whole side sometimes of a vinyl record. And I love that. That's kind of what I fell in love with, the magic, the romance of being able, you know, the romance of an album being analogous to a, a great piece of literature or a great movie or a short story. And that's obviously something that's very hard to maintain in the age of streaming, where, as you say, if you can't make an impact in 30 seconds, then forget it. And that's also, I mean, that's kind of penetrating all aspects of the music industry. So, for example, radio won't even touch a song if it has an intro. They won't even touch a song if it has a solo in it. So what's happening is that all modern pop music is becoming completely vocal orientated. Now, as someone who's always loved that kind of magic, the combination of music, instrument, great instrumentalists and singing and melodies and visuals, it's kind of heartbreaking to me to see the industry moving more and more away from those things. And do you sense that lack of attention you know, in the live sphere as well? I mean, I don't know how many shows you go to as a fan, but one of the things I notice is the people who go to shows talk all the way through, perk up and go performatively mad for the one song that they've come to mm -hmm. hear, the hit single, and then go back to chatting again. I mean, I imagine that your fans are sufficiently attentive that that's maybe not an issue at Stephen Wilson shows. Well, luckily, I don't have any hit singles. <laughs> so, you know, I guess having a hit single can be a nice problem to have. And I would love to have had a big hit single, but I don't have that issue. So I think one of the one of the nice things about my live shows is when people come to the show, they literally have no idea what they're going to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's nice, you know, for me, it's always been one of the nice elements about going to a show is that surprise where you don't know what's coming next. So in that sense, I don't have that problem. I think, I think my fans tend to engage a little bit more deeply with the music generally anyway, whether it's, whether it's listening to it at home or coming to see the show, but I still have the issues, you know, with people, you know, watching the whole show through a, through a mobile phone, you know, I'm, I've, I've had people standing in the front row, you know, with their back to me, filming their friend in the audience. I mean, and not, not even thinking for one moment, but I can't see them. I can see you, you know, I can see you there. I can see you yawning your way through the show. 
Yeah. And that's one of the, the unfortunately, that's one of the, the unfortunate things about being a live performer is the show at that point, you start obsessing about that one person in the audience that looks like they're not engaged with it. And the whole show becomes just for that one. This fucking show is for you now. And you kind of forget all the other people that are really loving it and really engaged with it. That drives me absolutely nuts. Now, you talked a minute ago about how Spotify has made all music ever available. Everyone can have everything. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the consequences of that has been the death of musical tribalism, which I guess as somebody who makes music in a variety of different styles is great for you. But do you think we lose anything from that? I mean, you and I grew up in an age of youth cults and you, you could identify people by how they dressed, which is impossible now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a loss or do you think that's an acceptable price to pay for people being more open-minded? Um, I never really acknowledged the idea of genre anyway. I mean, I remember going to school and you're right. There were these different tribes. There was, when I went to school, which was in the early eighties, there was the little group of people that just listened to, you know, the specials and madness. And then there was another group of people that kind of all copied Gary Newman, the way he looked. And then there was another group of people that listened to the new wave of British heavy metal. And I just loved it all. For me, it was just all magical. And I didn't really understand that idea of listening with a set of musical parameters. So I guess for me, I don't, I don't miss that tribalism. But I also, just to slightly contradict you, I still do see a lot of evidence of that. Maybe because, maybe because I'm, I come from this world of classic rock, or at least I'm perceived to come from this world of conceptual rock, progressive rock, and there's still a lot, there's still a lot of musical snobbery in that world. Um, some of which I've experienced with this record, because this record is obviously more overtly accessible, it has more of a pop sensibility, and you'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't, um, but certainly there's still a lot of sort of, you know, snobbery, and this idea of listening within a very strict set of musical parameters. Even the word pop can be like a red rag to a bull to some of these people. So I think in some ways tribalism is still alive and well, if, if you want to look at it like that. Yeah, but that's tribalism amongst uh, people in their 40s and 50s rather than amongst 16-year-olds, isn't it? Which is a slightly different thing. Very true. Very true, yes. It was, I was um, looking through the Prog Magazine readers groups on Facebook and um, seeing what they had to say about you. And you know, I've been struck by your cover of The Last Great American Dynasty from Folklore by Taylor Swift, one of the, the best albums of last year, and that's the best song on one of the best albums of last year. Agreed. Agreed. Which, yeah, clearly. But were you also trolling some of your uh, more stuck in the mud fans by putting that out there, knowing that some people would react about react to it as as you you getting involved with teeny bopper music, which was one of the one of the phrases I saw. Well, I I knew that it would upset some people, but that wasn't the reason I chose it. The reason I chose it was the reason you've just mentioned that actually I wanted to do something from an album last year as a cover to end the year, the Future Bite Sessions to end with a cover of something that I really liked from 2020. And when it came down to it, that was my favorite song of 2020 by another artist. So it, it didn't come from a cynical place, but I also knew that it would upset some fans. But I think I can't, part of me, the bloody mind of me, a bloody minded part of me actually likes to upset people. Because if people have that kind of idea about an artist like Taylor Swift, as being pop fluff, then they clearly haven't listened very carefully to the last two records, as you pointed out. Terrific records. For me, she's definitely elevated herself from being a pop artist, uh, sorry, a pop, uh, a modern pop sensation to being a real artist with those records. Um, so 
I'm, I'm aware, you know, I'm kind of aware in a way that anything I do now, and I think this is probably true broadly of the internet anyway, anything anyone does will attract some degree of negativity. That's almost built in to the, you know, the very design of the internet in a sense. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going out looking for those kind of comments. In fact, I, I don't read comments and I don't read feedback. It's really just noise at the end of the day and it's not relevant. Now, you're also working on a book at the moment. Is that going to be dwelling on some of these themes that you talk about a lot in interviews and the, the, the themes that you bring out in your songs? I mean, I guess the chance to write a chapter rather than 16 lines about the subject that particularly fascinates you must be quite compelling. Yes, in fact, there are chapters on at least two of the things we've already discussed. So there's a chapter on my relationship with my fans, which I think is quite a unique one. Um, again, these, these people have mostly come to my music through word of mouth. And they are quite loyal. They complain, some of them complain a lot, but actually ultimately they're very loyal and they don't, they don't have that kind of fickle nature that a lot of, a lot of musician, you know, uh, musicians have in their fan base. So they kind of stuck with me through thick and thin. And I do push them around a lot. You know, I've changed direction many times over the years. So there's a, there's a chapter about that. Um, and there's also a chapter about what I call the art of listening. And this idea that I never really acknowledged, you know, generic, you know, music as being generic. Um, that I was always curious about following the path, if you like, and exploring music that was on the very periphery, as well as music that was very much, you know, centre in the mainstream. And to me, there was never a question of, you know, one being good and one being bad. So it's, um, it's definitely quite an exploration of that subject matter, and obviously as it relates to my own career as well. Now, you've got kids who are approaching the age when social media is going to start dominating their lives. Um, what are you going to tell them about life online? Or are you going to be the cruel dad who refuses to let them have let them have phones and results in them being pariahs at school? No, they already have. They already have phones. They're allowed, you know, their phones, they can only use their phones for a certain amount of time a day. This is the problem, really. It's like, you know, the, you know, the genie's out the bottle. So you can't really deny the fact that this thing, it does exist. And as you pointed out, it is a wonderful kind of, you know, gateway or conduit to information as well. So you can't give one and not the other, can you? I just, part of me always hopes that kids um, understand for themselves the downside and the danger uh, of becoming addicted to the internet, becoming addicted to social media. And you know, one thing about kids is they're very good at rebelling, aren't they, against whatever is the norm. And the pendulum always has a sort of a tendency to swing slightly back in the other direction when something, something does become, you know, the norm. If you could, would you go back in time and de-invent the internet? <laughs> I would. No. In a shop. Would you really? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I've never thought about it. So your so your opinion is basically that it's not been for the greater good of mankind than the internet. I think it's made life troubling in so many ways. I also see this made an awful lot of benefits, but you know. We got by before the internet, didn't we? It's not that long ago we didn't have the internet. It's true, and also the point I made earlier that in fact a lot of the things that we discovered before the internet, we discovered in a much more organic way. Sure, it was harder to find the music we loved, the movies we liked, but we I think we did tend to appreciate them at a deeper level. Um, so I, I guess I would, I would have to think about your question more, but maybe you're right in that respect, yeah. Now, the new album is almost entirely solo. Um, how much did that dictate the musical choices that you made on the record? I think it was the other way around, really. Um, I kind of decided the particular direction I wanted to go in. 
and then realized I didn't really need so much contribution contributions from outside musicians this time. I think my previous albums has always been an element of more kind of uh, musicianship. This record, because it does have more of a pop sensibility, it's more electronic. There's nothing particularly clever on it in terms of music, certainly in terms of technique. I'm, you know, I'm very limited as a player, but I have a sound, I have an identity as a player. For example, all the guitar solos on this record almost come, they're almost extensions of the lyrics this time around. So there's none of the sort of classic rock, classic rock soloing tracks on this record. The solos are more kind of what you would call sound design, uh, more like part of the texture of the music. They come, they come as a kind of extension of the sentiment of the lyrics. And obviously as the person that wrote the songs, that was logical for me then to take on that role. And, you know, I did work very closely with a great co-producer, David Coston, very, very good programmer, very good keyboard player himself. So between the two of us, we pretty much managed to do everything uh, ourselves. Did your listening habits affect the sound of the record? Always, yeah, always. So there've been times in my life and I've been very, because I do a lot of work remixing classic albums for, you know, 5.1s and box sets and legacy editions, I find myself, you know, quite often immersed in a particular musical world, you know, for a period of months sometimes. And certainly there've been times in my life when that has rubbed off very much on the kind of music I've been making. This time I think less so, the remix work less so, but certainly working with someone like David and we were listening a lot in the studio to a lot of modern pop productions. Um, not, not even necessarily because I particularly liked the music, but because there was something fresh and interesting about the production approach. So listening to things like Billie Eilish, who I do actually like a lot, and kind of taking, you know, taking a lot, not necessarily from the, the songwriting, but from the kind of approach to the production and arrangement, the very kind of painterly way that she and her brother put her records together. Very sparse, very rhythmic, very, but still sounds very organic. And we certainly would be listening to things like that and taking a lot of inspiration, um, you know, back to what we were working on. I mean, how does, how does that work in practical terms? Obviously, you're not copying chord progressions or arrangements. Are you looking for sounds that can be brought to bear in your own record? Looking for ways to use space or production techniques? Yeah, exactly. The latter, yeah. So more about how the, the kind of building blocks, the musical vocabulary and how that's, how they're creating, particularly Billie Eilish, how they create that music with relatively small amount of elements. I mean, if you listen to one of her records, there's very little on it. Um, but the sounds that are there are obviously, you know, obviously very, very strong, very beautifully produced. It's, it's what I mean by that kind of painterly aspect to it. Mm. So there's a lot of that kind of aesthetic on this record, almost taking things away and stripping things down, uh, rather than what I might have done in the past, which is like multi, you know, multi-track over and over again to create this massive kind of sound. There are moments on this record, like on a track like Self, well, there's actually very little on that track, you know, and the vocal is to the forefront on a song like that. Hmm. Where, in which areas do you think the most forward-thinking music is being made right now? You know, where are the most exciting productions and sounds and arrangements? Is it within pop and within R&B and electronic music and hip-hop? Yeah, no question. I think for me, you know, if you look at the history, of, particularly if you look at the 20th century, you have the first 50 years of the 21st century completely dominated by jazz as a kind of mainstream pop culture kind of music. And then rock and roll comes along, guitars come along and jazz becomes a kind of cult, goes underground, becomes a cult kind of music. And then for the, for the second half of the 20th century, rock music becomes completely dominant. Um, 
And I think we're now entered, having entered the 21st century, rock music has pretty much gone the same way that jazz did before. It's become a kind of niche and underground music. Part of that is because it has failed to reinvent itself. In my view, rock music has failed to reinvent itself. And I, I consider myself part of that scene. So I blame myself as much as anyone. But I don't think rock music has really come up with anything fresh, unique. That's not to say there aren't great bands out there. Of course there are still, but nothing that's gonna really infiltrate the main, mainstream and you know change people's ideas about what, what rock music can be. And I think so gradually you've seen over the last 20 years, the, the gradual marginalization of rock music. Um, and the complete rise and dominance of urban music and electronic music. And I completely understand why. When I, when I listen to it, as compared to what I hear going on in the world of rock music, even though I may have more of a personal preference for the rock music, I hear so many more ideas, so many things that go, wow, you know, I, something that made me go, wow, I would never have thought of that. Or production styles which are completely fresh and sound completely contemporary, and cutting edge in a way that rock music just doesn't sound any, anymore to me. So maybe this is, all, this is all just part of the way that music continues to evolve. Do you think that's a matter of lack of imagination or the fact that rock music, by virtue of the instruments it uses, has a necessarily limited sonic palette that when you're making music entirely electronically, you are not limited in the same way? But I think the same thing will probably inevitably happen to electronic music too. You know, there will become you know, there will, there will be the cliches. I mean, there already are, of course there are, there's a whole bunch of cliches and tropes that 99% of electronic music kind of adheres to. But the point is when you hear that 1% that sounds really unique, obviously there are things that people are doing with electronic music they couldn't do with guitar, drums, bass. But I'm sure the day will come when electronic music also kind of exhausts its musical vocabulary, its musical palette. And something else at that point may come along, who knows? Sea shanties apparently is the big thing at the moment. So when was the last time you heard a rock record by a new band that you felt was genuinely exciting? Would it have been more than 20 years ago? I don't know. I mean, I've probably heard, um, whatever heard rock music that's been genuinely exciting in the 21st century. I remember, you know, the last time I can remember being really excited by rock music was probably in the very beginning of the 21st century. And I was introduced to a lot of the Swedish Norwegian and Finnish, the really extreme black metal, death metal, uh, technical metal, Gent, I think it's called in, uh, these days, bands like Sugar, and I worked with a band called Opeth, fantastic band. Um, and those bands seem to be doing something genuinely quite different at that time. But even that, the kind of progressive metal scene has just really become a set of parameters, it seems to me, um, within which all the music is kind of made. So, you know, probably is getting up to 20 years ago since I was really blown away by something uh, from the rock idiom, yeah. Okay, these past couple of albums you've made have been a very clear and deliberate attempt to be much more direct with your music. Now, I know, of course, you've never been tied to one style, going back to the very beginnings of your career, but why has it taken you so long to address the mainstream directly? It's a very good question. I, I don't have any master plan, I think, is the answer. I don't have a master plan. And like I said to you, when, you know, I, I finished with my previous band Porcupine Tree about 10 years ago, or at least we took a, we took an in, a, a hiatus, which is still continuing to this day. And I knew that I wanted to do something different. Um, I started off exploring records, which perhaps 
I would admit were quite nostalgic in their own way. My first solo album was very nostalgic for the world of shoegazer music and post-punk music, which is kind of the music I grew up with, you know. So there were lots of influences from things like Cocteau Twins and Wire and Magazine on that first solo record. And then I got really immersed in the world of, of almost classic conceptual rock music because I was working on the catalogues of King Crimson and Jethro Tull and my head was full of that music. And I thought it'd be great to do a couple of records in that style. So I did a, a couple of records in that style, which became by far my most successful to date. And I think part of the problem with, with me buying, uh, being identified with that particular genre is because those two records were so successful. Mm. Um, again, nice problem to have. But then having done that, I'm like, okay, well, I want to do something different now. And I started working at that time with, with the catalogue of Tears for Fears, and I was working on the Ultravox and the XTC catalogue. And my head was full of that music. So I kind of started working more on, a, on this kind of album to the bone, the last album, which was more, I guess, an homage to big experimental 80s pop music. Um, Kate Bush and all those kind of people too were big influences on that record. Talk Talk was a big reference point for me, Pesh Mode. This time around, the Future Bites, the one thing I knew right from the beginning before I even wrote a note is that I want to make a record which has no sense of nostalgia about it. I want to make a record that is, has no sense of homage to it at all. I want it to sound like it's, it could only have been made right now. Mm. And that was part of the thought process of teaming up with David as well, because David is someone whose production I'd really admired with Bats for Lashes, Natasha Bats for Lashes, um, Everything, Everything. And I knew David, I've known David for a long time, and I knew David has a fantastic musical knowledge. I mean, he's, he's, he's the same generation as me, so he has the same kind of, you know, music in his past that I do. And what I love about his production is there's always an awareness of the history of music, but it never lapses into nostalgia in the way I think I might have been guilty of in the past. Mm. Well, you've had a, a very varied and you know, really pretty successful career. You can do what you want artistically. I imagine you can afford to eat in the restaurants you want, and even better, you won't get stared at when you're in them. Now, to many people, that sounds like a dream career, but one of the themes in your conversations, and we've talked about this before, is that you feel underappreciated by the world outside your fan base. I mean, why, given that you have what many people would say is the perfect career, do you feel underappreciated? I know, it's, it's be careful what you wish for, isn't it? I, I, I think it's quite simple. Um, I believe that there are still a lot of people out there that would like what I do, particularly now like the Future Bites, that would like what I do if they had the chance to hear it. But one of the obstacles I've always had right throughout my career is a lack of support from the mainstream, the mainstream media, whether it's radio, TV, press is pretty good for me these days, but for a long time, for many years, it wasn't, so, it wasn't very supportive either. So it's quite simple. If you make something that you really believe in, you know, and you're really proud of, the natural instinct is to want to share it with as many people as possible. But if there is this obstacle in your way, which is that you don't get, which means that you don't get to lots of these people, I'm quite happy. I think, you know, I, I kind of always look with envy at people like Tom York or Trent Reznor, because at least everyone's had the opportunity to make up their minds whether they like Tom York or Trent Reznor or not. But I think the, the problem for me, and I might be wrong, but I, I've always believed that the problem is that a lot of people still have never heard of me or had the opportunity to hear Stephen Wilson music. So they haven't made up their, I'm very happy if they decide they don't like it, it's not for them. 
but I think it's fair to say there's still a lot of people out there that wouldn't know me and have never heard me heard of me so it's not the wish for celebrity it, I guess it's the wish for the music to kind of proliferate more and at least for people to be able to have the chance to decide whether they like it or not. But don't you feel there's a bit of a dichotomy there? On the one hand, you firmly believe in and champion the notion that the artist's main duty is for themselves. On the other, you want everyone to appreciate you, but on your terms, not their terms. No, I don't want everyone to appreciate me. I want everyone to have the chance to decide whether they appreciate me or not. So there's a slight difference there, Michael, yeah. So, you're right. I mean, listen, there's, there is an inherent paradox in being an artist and a professional musician anyway, that you are supposed, if you're an artist, you are supposed to make music in a vacuum. You're supposed to make music that is completely true to your own self and your own soul. But at the same time, you have to be able to sell it in sufficient quantities to be able to continue to do that. That's a paradox which is unresolvable. And that's, that's existed for as long as the world, the, you know, the idea of the concept of professional musicianship has existed. I kind of negotiate that in my own way, the way everyone does, you know. I don't consider myself an, rather pompously, I don't consider myself to be an entertainer. So I never think about my fans or what they expect from me or my listeners or what they expect from me. But at the same time, once I've finished a record, I'm very happy to play whatever games I need to, to get that music out to as many people as possible. And that's the way I kind of resolve it in my own mind. What do you think defines the worth of music? The, the creator's happiness with it or the listener's happiness with it? Integrity. I, you know, I, I, think, I think if something has integrity, the quality does ultimately reach people. I, I do believe that. I mean, you know, I speak as someone who, as I say, have never really had massive, massive support from, from the media and the mainstream. So the music has reached an audience in that very kind of organic way. And I like to think the one thing that my listeners will always understand about everything I do, although there's been some umming and arming about this new record, but even the people that, that have been, I hope by now they've heard it, they realize this record has been made with integrity um, and not for any other reason that it was the record I wanted to make. And I've always been very clear about my love of pop music. You know, I've always been as happy to talk about ABBA as I have Carline Stockhausen, you know, and that's a constant right throughout my career. And it comes from, as I say, from, from me not really understanding this idea of genre, going back to the very beginnings of my, you know, of having an appetite for music. So that's really continued. And, and, and I think that um, being able to, to do what I do and still have a successful career, I don't, I don't underestimate how unusual that is and how lucky I am. Uh, but still, I would like to reach more people. And what musician would not tell you that? Do you think it is ever all about the music in that dread phrase? I ask because, you know, I used to get spectacularly fed up of rows I would have in Guardian comment threads with people saying, why does such and such matter? Why does how they look matter? Uh, why does, you know, what they're saying to you matter? It's all about the music, to which I'd always point out that if Elvis had looked like Bernard Manning, no one would have <laughs> Elvis. And his musical history would have been completely different. Yeah. Do you think it's all about the music? Of course it isn't, no. It isn't. I think it's it's about music. It's about the image, and there's also a lot of nepotism involved as well, and connections. You know, um, there's there's something quite arbitrary about what becomes successful sometimes. You know, even though, as I said a few moments ago, I think quality ultimately will, will out. I think in I think those things sometimes can take years. You know, the kind of Nick Drake model. Um, the music that's very successful at any given moment, there is a kind of arbitrariness to it. I mean, why? Why does a particular song, why does a particular artist 
rise to the top of the pack and a hundred others that seem almost indistinguishable, at least to me, remain obscure. I've never quite understood that. So for me, my career is always, it's, it's been kind of a war of attrition. It's about just sticking around and, and, you know, almost by stealth, finding myself in a position where I do have a good fan base. But clearly, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a traditional pop icon. I think I have a, in my own way, I have a kind of recognizable personality, a recognizable image, but it's not the kind of one that the, the world of pop music, you know, would, would traditionally embrace. And, uh, and champions. So I understand that's part of it too. Of course I do. And I'm 53 now, so it's becoming increasingly hard to sort of maintain that stance. Well, I mean, you know, there are people who just seem to be born to be pop stars, you know, whether or not they actually become pop stars sometimes. You know, Prince, Madonna, Kevin Rowland, even my beloved Lawrence from Felt, who never had a hit record, but clearly has an identity as a, well, somebody who wanted to be a pop star. Mm. You know, their, and their identity is absolutely clear to those people who follow them. Now, you're not that kind of pop star. So you touched on this a moment ago. So what is your identity? Well, I think, you know, I, I have this, I have this reputation. I have certain things that, that people always say about me, you know, that I'm a workaholic, that I'm a, a self-confessed music nerd, um, you know, and, and that I'm somehow committed to the idea of bringing back the idea of the album as a musical journey, as a musical continuum. And I think those are things that definitely people would associate always with all of my work, always what I've done. Um, beyond that, I cannot say, you know, it's one of those things where the last thing you see when you look in the mirror really is you. Mm. you just You just see the things you don't like, the hair that's out of place, you know, or, or the bad clothes. You don't really see you the way other people do. But I think I've come to, you know, for years and years and years, I didn't, for example, I didn't feel confident as a singer. I didn't feel confident as a front man. I didn't feel confident as a guitar player. But over the last 10 years or so, particularly, I think I've grudgingly come to, to sort of, you know, acknowledge to myself that there is something distinctive about the way I make music and there is something distinctive about the way I look. You know, I may not be Prince, obviously, and I may not have that sort of charisma that those kind of pop stars have and had. Um, but I do have something which I suppose to my fans is a kind of unique musical world that they can buy into. And I think, again, it comes back to that word integrity. At least I hope they feel that everything I do, I do with integrity. It comes from the right place. It comes from a place of absolutely being obsessed still, 40 years later, still to this day, obsessed with this rather romantic notion of the magic of music. And I say that because a lot of people I know that have been in the business much less time than me have fallen out of love with the magic of music. Mm. It has become a job mm. to them. And it never has to me. It never has become a job to me. I still love it. You know, that's why the podcast that I do with my friend Tim, the album years has been so successful because it's just two 50, 50 something nerds arguing about music as passionately as we did when we were 18. Does being, um, does being a song artist help with that? Because I mean, the number of people I've spoken to, musicians I admire, who's maybe 10 or 15 years into their career, reach the level of success where they're selling out theatres in the big cities, it's a good living, but also it's become a career to them because if, say they're the principal songwriter, then the whole band is dependent upon them for their livings, the crew is dependent upon them for their livings, management needs to take their money for the livings, there's people at the label, especially if they're a successful band on an indie label, there's people at the label who are dependent upon them for their, for their livings. And they talk about it and you, you can hear the unhappiness in them, the fact that you know, they're no longer doing it for the reasons that they did. 
they're doing it because they have to support other people. So yeah. as a solo artist, especially releasing on your own imprint now, does that help stave off it becoming a career? Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. And there's another reason why that's also true. Being in a band, by necessity, if you want to reinvent yourself and move forward and change your direction, you have to have the whole band unit agree that you're going to go in a particular direction. How likely is that? How likely is it that four or five people are all going to agree that you want to go in a particular musical direction at the same time? It's almost impossible. It's actually the reason I decided that I had to be a solo artist again. Because I could feel, you know, if you think of a band as, you know, a Venn diagram, you've got four people in the band, and there's this little area in the middle where those four circles cross, and that's the music that you agree you want to play as a unit. Mm. And so inevitably, that musical palette becomes quite limiting and quite small, especially for me as someone who loves so many different kinds of music and wanted to try all sorts of different things. So I realized at that point that I had to stop being in a band and become a solo artist in order to be able to, in a sense, do the same that's what my great idols like Bowie and Zappa and Neil Young and Kate Bush and those kind of people were always able to do as solo artists, which is to change direction completely from album to album without having to answer to anyone else. But I suppose, you know, they still have their management and those kind of people, but they don't have to answer to other people in their own band. Mm. Um, and that, that has been so fundamentally important to why I've been able to do with the now six solo records I've done, which I think are all all pretty different to each other and I love that and I love that you know again for me it's an analogy with making movies you know you think of a movie maker like Stanley Kubrick or Christopher Nolan they'll make a science fiction movie then they'll make a costume drama then they'll make a war movie then they'll you know whatever it is they're doing they go the horror movie they're almost jumping from genre to genre in a way that's almost accepted in the world of cinema but it's extremely unusual extremely unusual in the world of music Okay, last question before we move on to the ones from the people who've been watching the stream, because there are a lot of questions there and quite a lot of quite good questions. And it's the audience question. Is a loyal audience a constraint as much as a benefit to an artist? Um, well, obviously, you know, bearing in mind what we've talked about, I've, I've done my best to ensure that it isn't a constraint. Part of that is kind of tuning out the kind of instant feedback that social media has given every artist now. And this is, I think this is part of a problem. I think a lot of artists I know, unfortunately have a real issue with this, which is that the moment you release something, a new song, a new video, literally within five minutes, within a minute, listen, within 30 seconds, there will be a wave of opinion instant feedback and these are things that the, some of the artists I mentioned before never had to deal with Bowie never had to deal with that kind of you know instant feedback can you imagine the reaction from going from Ziggy Stardust to Young Americans if, if he posted Young Americans online as the follow-up to whatever it was Diamond Dogs or whatever it was you can imagine the kind of wave of negativity that would have probably come from the loyal fan base and that is Obviously, if you take that into consideration, if you take that into account, if you allow that to affect you, of course, that becomes an incredible constraint and a distraction, uh, a really debilitating distraction. But I've done my best to really tune that out. I've learned from experience that it's best not to engage with that. 
And actually, not only that it's best not to engage with that, but it's actually a good sign if you create that kind of negative feedback. At least people are talking about what you're doing. As long as I think you've got people that are positive and negative, it's a good thing. If it was just negative, maybe I'd be worried. But it seems to me that as long as people are talking about your music and their expectations have been confronted, that's what I'm ultimately, that's what I'm ultimately most pleased about. Okay, so moving on to questions from the people who've been listening in. Uh, let's start with Edgar's Binance. I apologise to anyone if I mispronounce your, mispronounce your names. Um, it's merely that I'm just reading it off the screen. So Edgar's says, four years ago in 2017, you said that you'd sacrificed having a family for music. Now that you really are a family man, how do you feel that's affected you as an artist? It's a very good question. The simple answer is I don't know, except to say that I think it must have done. Um, I mean, everything, everything that you experience, um, I think, in life as an artist is obviously going to have some effect on your creative output. It must do. If, if it's not, then there's something wrong. You know, exactly what that is, I couldn't say. I'm sure there are lots of people out there that are putting two and two together and getting five and saying, oh, he's made a pop record because he's happy and he's got, he's got a wife and kids now. Mm. Um, actually, most of the record was written before that happened anyway so that that wouldn't be true anyway but I don't I don't know I mean obviously I I didn't feel when I didn't have kids and I didn't have a family I didn't feel like I missed it but then I met my wife and I realized now that in a way I was missing that mm. and perhaps I did have more of a tendency towards melancholia than I do now although Future Bites is still quite a dark record. I mean, it's very, the subject matter is still very much, uh, you know, about uh, dystopian times and all that. But there isn't perhaps as much melancholy in the record. Mm. Um, and I've always had a, a kind of tendency towards melancholy, perhaps because of that, perhaps because I didn't have a family. And I know that's part of what people responded to uh, in a very positive way to my music. Um, the Future Bites is definitely a step into something else. I don't know where the next record is going to take me. It will be the first record I've written, whatever it will be. It will be the first record I, I would have written since being married and being mm. a stepfather. So who knows? We'll see. Okay, let's get train spottery with Jake Stringer, who massively enjoys this new album. He took the dad book set to his dad's to open it with him, and they both love looking through all the Easter eggs. And the question is, was the decision to put so many secret tracks on so many different formats or places intentional to fit with the exclusivity theme of the Future Bytes products? E.g. Anyone But Me only appearing on the cassette, then tracks a little on various seven inches or on the B-sides. Or is it, as we were talking about uh, the other week, uh, because you're rinsing the fans for every penny you can get out of them by making them buy 300 <laughs> formats? Well, I mean, part of it is obviously playing the format game. You know, you have to, I, I have to, you know. Um, my, well, I don't, actually, I don't have to, but my management and record company wouldn't be very happy if I didn't, you know. And I, listen, I'm happy to play that too. Part of me actually loves that too. And I'm sure there are fans out there like me that love it when an, when an artist kind of puts different tracks on different formats and it's like you collect them all. I remember in the good old days when CD singles were still around, sometimes you would get two different versions of the CD single with different tracks on each. And I love collecting those things. So part of it is that, part of me is I love to play with formats because I'm a fan of physical media anyway. 
part of it is obviously also in incentivizing, uh, you know, different formats and, 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 and incentivizing, you know, record chains to stock certain editions of this and that and that. Part of it is also because I wrote, as I always do, I wrote a lot more than I needed to for this record. I wrote something like 30 songs for the Future Bites, but I was, but I was absolutely determined this time, this record would not be more than 45 minutes. Yeah. Because I've been talking about this for years. Albums are too long. The CD generation created this sort of bloated 80 minute, this idea of this bloated 80 minute long album. And I've been talking about this for years and I haven't been practicing what I preached until this record, I was determined. So that meant leaving out a lot of music that I was actually quite proud of. Mm. But luckily these days, we have the deluxe edition box set, uh, which there's another six songs in the deluxe edition box set. And the record company came to me a couple of times and said, we want to do something special for the, you know, the indies and we want to do something special for the, you know, the tour edition and all that. So songs have been kind of allocated to these, these deluxe editions, these special editions and limited editions. Personally, I, as I say, I, as a fan, I love that shit. You know, I'm not trying to fleece people. Um, I think people actually like it. They like to collect the different formats. At least I hope so. Now, there's a question here, which is a very good question, and I cannot find it. So my apologies to the person who asked it for not reading out your name, but this is a good question. In the new video, all the faces are white. Is that because you needed uh, face shapes that matched your own? Or did you simply not think, or the video maker not think about including different ethnicities? That is a very, very, very good question. And I'll tell you why we didn't do it, is because I was afraid that it could backfire and, and look like some kind of, what, what's the expression? Like, uh, like minstrel. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the crass way of putting it. Yeah, cultural appropriation, one might say. Um, I think we we did actually have we experimented more with 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 some different um, different looks and different people. We had Barack Obama in there at one point. I think he's gone, hasn't he, from the final video? Um, I was very worried that I could be on dodgy ground uh, for the for the aforementioned black and white minstrel reason so it was one of those things where we couldn't kind of win either way if we didn't have black black faces people would say you know we're we're um ignoring a large part of you know uh, of our culture and if we did have black faces it, it could risk looking a bit dodgy mm. i hope that i hope that kind of makes sense that answer yeah well Isabel Ortiz also related to this video. Um, who came up with the idea for the video and who chose the faces in the end? There was an element of trying to find faces that would work. Um, they had to have roughly a similar face shape to me. Um, so Miles Scarron, who made the video, kind of he experimented with lots of different faces uh, over the last couple of months. And uh, these were the ones that, that kind of fitted best. I, I personally love myself as Scarlett Johansson. I'm really pleased with that one. I think I look great as Scarlett Johansson. Um, so um, I can't remember what the first part of the question was anyway. What was the first part of that question? The first question, the first, uh, oh, let me scroll back up, was um, how, did, how did you come up with the idea for the video? Okay, so I think, I think it was a, if you think about it, it's a pretty obvious idea. The, the idea came up because I became aware that this kind of deep fake technology existed. And as soon as I knew that it was possible to do that, it just seemed so perfect for a video for self. 
And so I think I might have mentioned it to Miles and I said, can we do this? And he said, yes, I've been experimenting with the software already myself. It just seems such a perfect idea for this, the subject matter of this particular song. From Ryan Calhoun. Hello, Stephen. You talk a lot about cinema, how, how it influences your work. Um, he was wondering about your favourite filmmakers. Now you've, you've mentioned Stanley Kubrick, Christopher Nolan, David Lynch, even in this conversation. Uh, but what other directors would you say have an influence on your work, if indeed film directors do influence your work? I think, I think film generally does. Cinema very much is uh, a big part. You know, even, even going back to the album Hand Cannot Erase, which was inspired by the documentary Dreams of a Life about Joyce Carol Vincent. So that, I mean, that was something I, I learned about from, from watching that documentary. Uh, so film has always been, you know, I would say more, it's funny, people always ask what are your musical influences, and I would always try and divert them more to the idea of cinema. I think it, I think it has been as important, if not more important than, than music sometimes in influencing me. Um, over the years, a lot of, I mean, recently, um, I love the movie St. Maud that came out last year. Uh, I love the Charlie Kaufman movie. I think I'm thinking of ending things. I thought that was a wonderful movie. I like things that are a bit twisted, a bit surreal. Probably my favourite movie in the last 10 years is Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. And also there's a song on this album called Personal Shopper. And I love the Olive, Olive, Olivier Assayas movie, Personal Shopper. Mm. Even though the subject matter of the song is is nothing to do with the movie, I just stole the title. But uh, yeah, increasingly, uh, you know, movies probably even more important to me than the music in terms of inspiring what I do, yeah. Um. A couple of questions from various people related to how you might tour this new record and what your band setup might be. Now, given it's a, a completely electronic, or not completely, it's, it's a very electronic record, will you be changing the band setup for, for when you go out on the road? A little bit. I mean, it's not, it's funny, it's an album that has an electronic sensibility, but it's not actually that electronic through and through. Like, for example, a track like Eminent Sleaze, there's nothing electronic on that track at all. That is real drums, real percussion, real bass, real guitar, Fender Rhodes, real strings, real voice. But I understand there's something about the way the track is produced that has a very strong electronic sensibility. There's a lot of processing on it that makes it seem like it's electronic when it really isn't. Same is true of a song like Personal Shopper. Real drums, real bass, real guitars. Um, so I don't think things will change as much as people might think they would. I'm still going to need a killer, you know, rock and roll band to be able to play this music. Um, but there is a different sensibility on this record. So I'm, I may look at, you know, at changing, not so changing the lineup, but maybe choosing some slightly different musicians than I might have had on previous tours. But then I still have to play a lot of my old back catalogue as well. So I need people that have the versatility, you know, to be able to play both kind of a style in, in both styles in a way. Um, so without giving too much away, um, I'm looking at, I'm talking to various people. The other thing is, of course, a lot of people that were professional musicians 18 months ago or 12 months ago are not anymore. <laughs> you know, a lot of the session musicians that I was looking at, some of them have now had to find different forms of employment, yeah. um, which is tragic. My guitar tech is now working for a supermarket. Um, and this is a guitar tech that worked for Prince, you know, uh, was once Prince's guitar tech of choice. So that's really tragic. So I, I'm not sure who's even going to be around and able to come out with me when the time comes. We'll have to see. Okay. Um, now, this album clearly has been ready to go for quite a long time. Your personal shopper first went onto the streaming services very nearly a year ago now. 
So I would imagine that you probably have been devoting thoughts to what comes next. And Samantha Reyes asks, what do you see yourself doing next for your, for your next project? Will you stick with the electronic sound? Um, I think so. I, I, I do. I am really excited about electronic music. I mean, I've always been a fan of electronic music, but I'm really excited about the possibilities of electronic music in the context of what I do. And I don't find myself drawn to the guitar very much these days. I and I'm sure, and I can see this partly because of my own limitations as a guitar player, but I feel a bit bored when I play the guitar. I feel bored with what I'm doing. I feel like I've kind of said everything I can say with the guitar. And I'm very excited about, you know, I'm, I'm adding, I've, I've added even more synthesizers to my home studio over the last, you know, year or so during lockdown. And I'm very excited about the kind of possibilities of working with electronic. It's because, partly because it's a world where I feel like I'm an idiot again, in the best possible sense of the word. I approach a synthesizer not really understanding it. And when you approach something in a kind of idiot savant way, I think it's possible to surprise yourself. I can't do that. At least I find it very hard to do that now with the guitar. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited about, about working with electronic. And again, most of the music I'm listening to that I'm really excited about, contemporary music, seems to be coming from the world of electronic music. Even like, you know, contemporary cl so-called classical composers, someone like Max Richter, who essentially comes from the tradition of classical music, but he's obviously grown up with electronic music too, and he's using a lot of electronic music in, in the context of, of what he does. Yeah. And for me, that might be a good comparison of the way I kind of see what I do going. I'm still going to sound recognizably like me, at least I hope so. And I'm, I think that's true of the future bites too. But I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I can definitely see myself incorporating more of those kind of elements into the music going forward. Yeah. Uh, Rich Gill uh, was admiring the vinyl behind you and wanted to know what was the last thing that you played on vinyl? The last thing I played on vinyl, what a good question. Um, well, I think it was this, right? I'll show it to you. Um, talking about deluxe edition box sets, I just got this. This is an incredible box set of Ennio Morricone's library music made in the early set. Now, for those who don't know what library music is, library music was music that was made essentially for no other purpose, not for a specific purpose but just sent out to TV and cinema uh, companies and they could use it if they needed to. And Ennio Morricone and this guy called Bruno Nicola, one of his friends, made this, these 10 albums in 1972. Um, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, so I've been really enjoying this music uh, the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, I still haven't got through all 10 records in the box set, but um, there you go. So that's probably the last thing I listened to on vinyl was that. For those who are not familiar with library music, the Grange Hill theme was library music. Right. Yeah. The famous music from Australian cricket highlights was library music, but it was written for to be the theme for a news show. I mean, no right. news shows wanted it, so they used it for cricket. And also, um, I think that John Craven's News Round was a piece of library music too, I think, yeah. Almost everything you watched on TV in the 70s was library music, yeah. pretty much. Um, David Hilton asks, uh, with albums spanning many different genres and you having many musical influences, how do you choose to focus on a particular style and theme for each album? Well, the simple answer is I really don't. I mean, I just follow my nose and, and um, it, it's just, it's not done in, it's not done in a very self-conscious way. I, I, I think part of it for me is that every album is kind of a reaction 
No, that's the wrong way. I was going to say it's a reaction against the previous album. It's not a reaction against it, but it's kind of like I, I finish an album and then it's like, okay, I've done that. What can I do next that will be different and will justify the process of making another record? You know, because it's hard. Make it, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. It's not hard the way, you know, a lot of people's jobs are hard. But what I mean is that it's hard for me 30 years into my professional career now to come up with something that will enthuse me about the prospect of making another record. You're talking about 18 months of writing, demoing, recording, mixing, mastering, promoting, touring. That kind of commitment to an album cycle is a big one for me. I mean, it's, you're talking about two or three years actually more realistically nowadays. So I have to be excited about what I'm doing from the very beginning. And part of creating that excitement is in not repeating myself is in doing something that is not what my fans expect. It's not what I expect. And so I, I don't think that's a self-conscious thing. I think that's just, as I say, it's almost like going to the studio every day and just messing about until I get excited by something. And I don't necessarily know what that's going to be. On this album, a lot of it came from messing about with, specifically with arpeggiators on synthesizers, you know. Where you hold one note down and it starts arpeggiating it you know again in, in a particular scale or particular range of notes a lot of it was just that me being an idiot not knowing how the you know things like king ghost all these songs personal shopper came from messing about with synthesizers just trying to find something that i would be enthused and engaged enough with to, you know, take through this whole process so i, I don't have a, a, a real answer to the question because I don't think it's a conscious thing um, as long as I'm still excited by as long as there's kind of this serendipitous aspect of stumbling upon something that makes me want to go through this whole torturous pro you know, I'm overstating it again it's not torturous but this rather you know can be quite draining process two three year album cycle then I'll keep making records and if I can't then I might stop one day uh, a couple of people have asked about the presence of that great Knight of the Realm, Sir Elton John, on the new record. Now, he's someone who also is famously uh, an avid consumer of music. How, do, how did that come about? Had, had he been in touch with you saying, hey, Steve, love the records? Or did you go to him cap in hand saying, Sir Elton John, Knight of the Realm, please will you appear on my new record? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the whole story. Um... I've, t I've told it many times in all the interviews I've been doing recently, but I'll tell it here for the record too. Um, so basically I had the demo of Personal Shopper and I knew that in the, in the middle of that song, I knew that I wanted a section where somebody with a record, preferably with a recognizable voice would read out a list of what I call first world consumer items. Many of which I love, by the way, you know, I think a lot of people when it first came out assumed it was some, you know, massive critique of consumerism. No, not at all. It was, it was almost a love letter to consumerism. So deluxe edition box sets, 180 gram vinyl, you know, all this stuff that is obviously a big part of my world. Anyway, so I knew that I wanted somebody with a recognizable voice. I didn't really know who. I thought about maybe an actor or an actress. Um, and then one evening, myself and my wife went to see Rocketman movie. And for those that have seen that movie, they will know that at the end, there is the traditional pre-credits, where are they now sequence. Uh, all the major characters, what are they doing now? And the one that when it came to Elton himself, it says, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly what it says, but it says something like, meanwhile, Elton has managed to kick all of his addictions 
except one. And there's the picture of him with all the shopping bags and all this stuff. And it was the light bulb moment. It was like, of course, this guy is the most famous consumer on earth. It has to be Elton John. And it was almost like I wasn't prepared to take failure as an option, even though it was a tall ask, you know, to get one of the most famous people on the planet to read that shopping list on my little record, my little pop record. I was not prepared to take failure as an option. It was too perfect. And I managed to get the demo to him uh, through, through my friend Merck Mercuriadis, who used to manage Elton. And Merck's a big supporter of mine, great guy. And I got a message back the next day from Merck saying, Elton's ringing you in 10 minutes, he loves it. So at that point, I'm like completely freaking out, obviously. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, I got a call on my phone and it said, someone's calling you from Antibes in the south of France. So, okay, that must be him. And he came on the phone and he just said, hey, Stephen, it's Elton John. I fucking love your song. Let's do it. And of course, that was one of the most surreal moments of my entire life, but one of the most special ones too. Okay, well, what may or may not be a special moment, last question from me before we wrap things up. This is from Mark Lacey, who expects the Future Bites to go to number one. Um, and so when Del Boy became a millionaire, he said it didn't feel like he thought it would. Have you thought about what you might feel if you have your first number one album? I mean, I'm not, firstly, I'm not going to go to number one, unfortunately. Uh, Celeste is going to kick my ass, and possibly <laughs> Arlo Parks too, uh, probably deservedly so. Anyway, but um, I'm going to have another top five album, which is incredible. You know, that is incredible. I mean, my last album was top five. This one is going to be top five. I have had number ones in other parts of the world. Uh, famously, because you asked me about this last time, Mark, in <laughs> Finland. <laughs> the number one album in Finland. Uh, and, you know, it may go to number one in Germany. I think it's number one in Germany midweek too. So I may have number ones. Um, having a number one album isn't like it used to be. I think that mu much must be obvious to anyone that follows music these days. Um, but still, it's of course, for someone like me who grew up, you know, following the charts, as we all did in my generation, all listening to the, the top 40 rundown every week. It, it, it has a magic to it. And, and obviously it is a buzz if somebody tells you you've gone in at number three or number five or number one or whatever it is. It's an incredible feeling. Um, but there are other more important things these days than chart positions, particularly as I think artists like me, we tend to have incredible first weeks and then we disappear off the face of the planet week two, week three, week four. So the trick is really to try and get some longevity to a record. And I would, I would kill to have the kind of longevity that some of these urban records and some of these pop records have, you know, record, you know records by Billie Eilish, or they're, they're in the top 20 week in, week out, or the Ed Sheerans or the Lewis Capaldi's, you know, uh, or even an album, by, you know, someone like Michael Kiwanuka. I mean, that album's been, been in the charts for the best part of a year now. I would kill to have that kind of longevity. And in fact, I would give that up every day of the week rather than having a top five album. I would rather have an album that was in the top 40 for a year rather than go into top five week one and then disappear, you know, fall off a cliff week two. So I think a lot of what, what myself, the management and record company are really focusing on now is not week one, although we are obviously looking to try and get the highest chart position too, because that in itself is a story that you can then take to other media. But it really is to try and get some, some kind of sustained sales through the record. And I would love that to happen because I think this record is 
the most accessible record I've ever made without losing any of my integrity or identity or personality. I have made a record which seems to me to have the potential to win me a lot of new fans. And that's what it's all about. It's not about music. It's not about celebrity. This goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. It's about believing you have something special and having a natural inclination to want to share that with as many people as possible. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen, and good luck. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone that's attended, attended this. Thank you. And thanks to the Rough Trade guys too. Thanks.